<laughs> what's up everybody uh i was just just gonna say good afternoon because it's afternoon when i'm recording this but i guess you could be the morning or the evening or any any time of day so whatever time of day you're in right now i hope it's a good one um really excited about today's episode uh this is an interview that i recorded with my good friend mike van ness uh, Mike is one of the all-time most charitable people um, I've ever met. Charitable with his time, charitable with with his personal resources. Uh, just an, an absolute uh, giving spirit that has been inspirational for me. I was a teammate of Mike's for three years uh, when we played together on Pit Ultimate, and since then our friendship has continued to blossom. Um, he's an amazing connector of people with a huge heart who um, shares that that kindness with everyone he comes across. Um, so really excited. I think you're really going to enjoy um, our conversation. We get into the motivation behind uh, his charitable endeavors, the mindset that he takes into his day-to-day life, And we also touch on the fact that he was adopted and and how that's affected his personal development, his um, internal self-talk. So we really really get into some deep stuff here, no pun intended. Um, But before we jump into that, I just want to remind everybody that you can support the show in three specific ways. Number one, you can check out goingdeepwithaaron.com. And check out the show notes for this episode. There's a link to uh, Mike's Twitter, uh, 068, the organization that he works with, along with some other good stuff in there. Um, Second, you can subscribe to the podcast. Make sure that you're going to be automatically downloading each new episode as it comes out. And finally, the biggest thing you can do for me, especially if you could do this as soon as possible, is leave a rating and a review on iTunes for me. Uh, reason for that is one of my big goals in, in this launch is to get in iTunes new and noteworthy um, podcast shows that have been released. And I only have eight weeks to make that happen. So as this is getting released, we're three days in. So a little bit more than seven weeks left to get ourselves into uh, the new and noteworthy section of iTunes. So a rating and a review are one of the key metrics for getting into that section. So you'd really help me out there. Um, And what I'm going to be doing is those of you who who out there who leave a five-star review, um, at the end of some upcoming episodes, I'm going to be reading those five-star reviews. Uh, sending out a personal thank you at the end of an episode. So please do that for me. I'd really appreciate it. And without further ado, Mike Van Ness.
thank you so much for being being on the show, man. Sure thing. It's my pleasure. Um, I'm really excited to interview you here. I uh, gave you a little intro before uh, before we started, and really the unifying theme when you look at everything that you're involved in is what I've always noticed, at least, is that you always seem to be on a mission to help others. You're very outwardly focused as opposed to um, being particularly interested in yourself exclusively. Um, can you tell me a little bit about how you um, see your m personal mission or how you came to um, find, find an interest in those areas? Yeah, well, I guess part of it is just attributed to that's how my parents raised me. Um, you know, a lot of you treat people with respect because they're people and that's that there's no sort of qualifiers on, on respect for others or, or, you know, common courtesy and, and things like that. And then, um, kind of reflecting on my own story and my own personal history, uh, so many people have kind of stepped into my life or spoken into my life and really, given me second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh chances and gone out of their way to make sure that um, I could flourish and that my own life could flourish. And uh, I guess I just feel it would be really selfish if I didn't kind of take that opportunity and that blessing and then kind of send it along to other people. It's a, it's a really core belief to me that um, good things inherently give of themselves um, if something is good it will give of itself to other things for their flourishing and their betterment so um, that's just kind of one of those sorts of principles that I've I've just based my life around um, through the various work and social and family experiences that I've had that's really cool um, to kind of jump in just into your um all the things that you're involved in. You just finished up an internship with Big Brothers Big Sisters. Uh, I've done a clinic with you where we taught some kids how to throw frisbees, some Big Brothers and their uh, some Big Brothers and Sisters and their littles. Can you just tell me a little bit about how you initially got involved with them? Um, maybe why? I don't know if you had a choice in the matter, but if you had a choice to say go to Big yeah. Brothers versus another. Uh, organization. Yeah, well, I'm uh, part of the the graduate program I'm in is uh, a full time field placement with a social service agency, um, and because I have so many different jobs and and obligations and have to focus on my schoolwork and make sure I'm keeping up with my my duties uh, in my home community as well, um, I was sort of time restricted. I couldn't put in a typical eight hour day to you know, just go in somewhere nine to five. So that kind of limited my options. And Big Brothers Big Sisters was one of the places where I could kind of tailor my schedule to what other obligations I had and what they needed from me and what I was able to provide for them. So that was a really cool opportunity and it ended up being a really excellent time. And and uh, I, I learned a great deal sort of in this field of social work and also just in the field of, of kind of nonprofit management and, and sort of business communication. Can you dive a little deeper on maybe the specific skills or specific things that you learned uh, in your time there? Yeah. Well, we, we sort of have this view of, of helping professions um, 
social services kind of things like that where it's pretty straightforward black and white you know big brothers big sisters is all about mentoring so a mentor shows up with the child and they hang out and then you drop the child off and it's over um, and that certainly is an aspect, but that's a very small aspect of what goes on um, at Big Brothers Big Sisters. Um, they serve over 1,300 kids a year. Um, last year they served 1,311 kids throughout Allegheny County. So that's just the Pittsburgh area, and that's not counting all the other cities that's that they're involved that's, in. That's just Big Brothers Big Sisters of Greater Pittsburgh. Um, and there's a lot of, so each match, each pairing costs $1,200 a year to do. So if you multiply 1,300 times 1,200, you're going to get a very large number. And, and it costs money to do these things. And each match has um, support through Big Brothers Big Sisters. Questions can be answered if you need help setting up a time to meet um, every other month, people are checking in with you, making sure things are going smooth, making sure everyone's needs are being met, helping settle communication issues, um, that sort of thing. There are matches constantly being made, so there are people who have to track that. There's all sort of administrative and paperwork stuff. Um, and then there's a lot of money that goes into making sure that these matches can can continue. Um, our average match length is the minimum requirement is 12 months. Ours is a number of years, um, something like two or four years. I can't remember. So you have this match going on for 36, 48, 60 months. Um, that costs a lot of money. So people have to raise a lot of money. So there's a lot of fundraising corporately, individually, a lot of applying for grants, which is what I helped out with mostly. Um, there's also raising awareness, um, maintaining good office dynamics, making sure everyone's on the same page, making sure everyone's buying into the mission, um, and, and so on. And you can just go on and on and on, and there's so many things that you have to do, and there is event planning to say thank you because that's a huge part of any nonprofit is thanking the people who've invested in you, who are working with you, thanking the, the, the bigs for what they do. Um, that's a, a huge component all of its own, and so there's all of this, all of these moving parts that have to be managed and I think that is is most of what goes on and a lot of what I learned about, um, you know, the classic analogies like an iceberg where you we in the public see the match, we see the great mentorship, but there's so much more going on to make that happen, um, which is really, I won't say I was completely unaware of it, but I was I, I didn't know how important that stuff is and how important that sort of bureaucracy is to making any functioning thing like that run and you know, I know that's not just Big Brothers Big Sisters. That's any any good nonprofit or, or or service organization has so many working parts to it that have to be managed and done well individually and then collectively fitting together. Absolutely, I think in anything, whether it's government, corporations, uh, bureaucracy is usually um, what catches the blame as opposed to what catches the appreciation. It's usually uh, the face or the mission or the event that catches all the um, admiration and that usually doesn't get very much credit yeah. so that's definitely a, a really important thing to acknowledge can you um, talk a little bit about how um, what your focus is as far as keeping big brothers and big sisters involved you mentioned that there excuse me you mentioned that there's um, you know a 12-month commitment yeah. but you're seeing big brothers and big sisters stay involved for 
uh, multiple years beyond the monetary aspect of that. Yeah. What are what are you and other leaders at Big Brothers and Big Sisters doing to keep people involved? Because I, the value of the relationship is really in, you know, yeah. does it last multiple years? Are, are they growing yeah. together as opposed to um, checking in for one year, I guess? I, I think... Um, thinking of it as a one-way street where a volunteer, a mentor kind of pours into the little, the mentee, and then kind of gets out is just uh, the wrong way to look at it. That's not actually what happens. What you're seeing is a, it's a two-way relationship where um, there, like you said, there's mutual growth. There's growth between the big and the little. And um, I think that it's my own personal belief that, that, kids are fully formed human beings without the information that adults have without access to all the information and so it's really a relationship between two human beings um, trying to figure out how to live in the world and that's a really beautiful thing when people are willing one person is willing to say yes I would love someone to come and, and give me a little extra help and a boost and, and hang out with me and I need that kind of adult presence in my life that extra adult presence and when an adult is willing to say, you know what, I am willing to give the time to invest in another human, um, that right there is a really strong foundation when you have two people who want to buy in because it's a volunteer organization. We're not paying the mentors. They're not getting a monetary um, kickback or any uh, compensation. Um, it's it's buy-in. It's getting people to buy into that this is a good thing. It's a helpful thing. And, you know, working with um, – the sorts of kids that we serve at, at Big Brothers, um, you start to see that they they can help you grow as much as you can help them grow. It's really a two way street, and it's it's a very mutually beneficial relationship. Absolutely. Um, so you've kind of wrapped up your time there as far as the internship ending. Are you still involved at all, or have you kind of fully trans transitioned into zero uh, six eight? Um, I would still like to be involved. I'm, I'm in the process of getting all my insurance information to them so I can become a big brother. Um, that's something I'd like to invest in. Uh, I love working with children and youth. Um, I'm also just kind of actively pitching the program to people like I'm doing right now or, or um, you know, if I have a friend who, who seems interested in that sort of thing or I come into a group of some, some kids who might need a little extra mentoring, um, that's definitely a, a program that I'll, I'll point them towards. I think, um, for me, relationships, even business relationships, don't end when I don't have to go into the office anymore where I've still, they've, they've formed me, they've shaped my thinking and the way I look at the world and hopefully I was able to contribute to their mission as well so that kind of mutuality for me still exists even though the formal relationship is over um so i'll absolutely be still be involved and, and hoping to to stay involved for a long time and that that mentality even if you're not like you said directly showing up to the office every day is really how you build a powerful responsive network i think a lot of people out there they see networking as well i gave this guy my business card or we shared a drink and talked for 15 minutes and that's well and good but having that like you said the mutuality of um, the relationship and knowing that if, if they really needed you for something you'd yeah. be there uh, you have relationships of people who are there ready to help you um, 
really makes your own personal network very, very powerful. Um, jumping into 068, um, do you want to talk a little bit about what 068 does and how you got involved with them? Yeah, absolutely. Um, 068 is right now uh, uh, not quite a nonprofit. We're in the process of applying for a 501c3 status, but um, the goal is to have a nonprofit that invests in the entrepreneurial and business capabilities of former prisoners, ex-offenders. And uh, my my role in that is less entrepreneurial and more to design the sort of case management system that helps uh, ex-offenders integrate back into society well and smoothly with the goal of not only staying out of jail for the rest of their lives, but... Um, maintaining a, a healthy life and you know gaining financial independence maybe home owner home ownership if that's what they want all these sorts of things that that we talk about as kind of measures of a, of, of a good and healthy life um, so it's it's my job to help help ex-offenders help themselves to these goals cool um is there i guess why entrepreneurship as opposed to other business skills i know that there's other organizations out there that maybe help you write a better resume help you get clothes that make you kind of fit into the business mm -hmm. world mm -hmm. um why specifically entrepreneurship and um what specific skills uh does that program focus on uh, i think the answer to that is kind of couched in a larger understanding of of what's going on um and, you know, I, I'll be the first to say I, I can't comprehend of what the experience of going to prison is like. I've never been in prison. I've never been incarcerated. But um, what w from from reading and studying and kind of observing and, and having conversations and listening is that when you go to prison, you have things, everything taken away from you. You don't eat on your own schedule. You don't sleep on your own schedule. You don't put on the clothes that you want to put on. You have everything done for you and to you. And, um, you know, in American culture, we value independence so much. That's kind of our one of our highest uh, ideals. And to have all of that ripped away from you is just a really shocking and violating experience. And um, there are all sorts of, of studies out there and, and thought and writing and good scholarship on the idea that if you have hope, you can get through things if you have something to hope for and hope in and look forward to, whether that be a positive or a negative thing, but just something that's out there that you can kind of fixate on, um, that that helps the coping mechanism, that helps people cope. Um, you know, looking at the works of people like Viktor Frankl talked a lot about that um, in relation to, to concentration camps in, in World War II. And so my boss, Dan Bull, um, is a, an ex-offender himself and while he was in prison noticed that people have very clever product or business or service designs they have this idea and it you know it goes all over the place from like different kinds of straws to strip clubs to lord knows what and um people in prison are extremely intelligent um we have this cultural view that maybe they're not and that's why they're in prison but I mean, to pull off a con or to pull off, you know, consistent drug sales or anything does take a lot of intelligence. Um, and and people are very clever. And perhaps just that energy, that creative energy and, and knowledge is focused in the wrong direction. And 
you could say that those pursuits are almost inherently entrepreneurial. Yeah. Both, yeah. Of the, both of the things yeah. you just cited have inherent entrepreneurial components to them. Absolutely. And, and refocusing those energies yeah. is really, yeah. I mean, sh- offers a ton of potential, I'd say. And, and that's investing in someone, but not only that, but investing in someone in a way that they want to be invested in. So it's not saying like you, you're going to not, go back to prison you're going to become financially independent and that might not even be on someone's radar but saying you you have this goal of making this product um here's how you can make this product happen there's a lot of steps in between um you know you right now and then you selling your product or marketing your product whatever and sort of like we were just talking about with big brothers big sisters there's a laundry list of steps in between that you have to know how to do and do well and do collaboratively with with each other step and with other things happening in the world around you that you have to learn how to manage. And so that takes a whole different level of education that perhaps um, people tend to take for granted. So there's if you're if you're an ex offender, you have to make people trust you again. Um, we have a very negative perception of, of ex offenders in society. So you have to find ways to earn people's trust. That can look like a job. That can look like you know apologies. That can all relationships, all sorts of different things. And you have to learn how to get people to think that not only you're worth investing in, but your product is worth investing in. So you have to have re- you know there's research that goes into that. There's marketing. There's all sorts of things. And that takes a very specific kind of education that people have to have. So our goal is to develop someone's hope, essentially develop what someone is kind of fixating on and giving them giving them hope and 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 promise. And uh, my job is to make sure that they can do that in an, in a healthy environment, in a healthy way, where everything else in their life is is kind of working in sync with their their job and their sort of desire to um, sell this product or market this service or, or what have you. What resources does 068 make available to these ex-cons that you're working with to help them not, not only just market a product or service or a business, but mm-hmm. just build the kind of fundamental skills that they'll mm-hmm. need to eventually be successful? Because as much as a, maybe a one-on-one uh, mentor can help, um, it seems like there's there's a definite knowledge base that they're going to have to reach in order to be successful in an entrepreneurial mm-hmm. venture mm-hmm. and not necessarily um, set them up to you know, hit another road bump or yeah. another pothole. Yeah, I think um, in addition to the business education, that you mentioned, I think a lot of it is things like getting a GED where people, you need certain qualifications for people to trust you. Um, that's just a fact of our world today. And so making sure people are getting a GED or or taking classes that kind of further their education in a subject that they're interested in to sort of, I think that ties back into making people trust you and showing that you're, you're a productive member of society. And... Um, I think also a lot of a lot of psychoeducation kind of here's how we cope with things if if there's a stressor how can we deal with a stressor in a healthy way um, and uh, this is speaking from my my perspective I'm not a business guru by any stretch of the imagination um, but helping people learn how to budget manage finances open a bank account um, plan their spending um, 
know where they can get help with food and your cable bill and housing and transportation, all these sorts of little details that maybe get taken for granted. And uh, I think that's a very underrated resource. Again, kind of playing back into that theme of, of behind-the-scenes bureaucracy that really is so important and making sure all these things are streamlined and running well so that people can focus on this big picture, the, f the face of what they're doing, which is a product or or an entrepreneurial design or something like that. Gotcha. Um, in in making these resources available and sharing them with the people that you're working with, um, what are some of the entrepreneurial skills or mindsets that you've adopted and implemented in your own life? Because mm -hmm. talking to you now versus talking to you maybe a year or two ago, um, just in the language you're using, um, my perception of your views and calculations that you're making in your own head, I do see a more business-oriented mindset, a more entrepreneurial um, mindset, not necessarily that you're starting your own business, but you are training yourself to think um, like an entrepreneur. So can you tell yeah. me a little bit about yeah. how you've had that development? Yeah, I think... Um I think a lot of it has to do with uh, getting hired by uh, a very, very smart, entrepreneurial-minded uh, person. Um, I do not want to <laughs> be found lacking in that department. I don't want to say, well, I just do social services and I don't know anything about that other stuff. Um, I want to have some sort of baseline knowledge of what's going on. and sort of. So I've s tried to orient my thinking that way um, in, in the past four or five months. Um, I also uh, have, in, in taking classes at Pitt, um, social work classes, I found that there's so much more than psychology and sociology that goes into social work. There's a lot of data and research and, you know, evidence-based practice. What are we doing that works? Um, what are the best practices, the practices that have been shown to work? And that applies to kind of everything across the board. In social work, we want to do things that have been shown to work. We want to do things that have a high success rate. We want to use scales and questionnaires that have um, high reliability scores, you know, um, high validity, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and, you know, how do you, in taking research classes that we have to take, how do you do, how do you measure internal and external validity? How do you measure reliability? What are good measures of reliability? Um, thinking about social work much more in terms of analytics rather than um, just I want to help someone. How do I help someone? How do I listen well to someone? And that's all important. But, I mean, again, it's it's coming back to this iceberg thing where we see counseling being done or a service being provided, but there's also a lot of analytics that have gone into where, why, and when that service is provided and uh, one question we get taught to ask a lot is why now why is this happening now at this particular moment why are things lining up the way they are and looking at that on an individual level and then on a society level so I think that sort of education um, for me to understand there are different levels to things and there's much more than sort of the surface level on helping professions has really influence my thinking and I guess in a, in a way that's uh, noticeable and measurable to other people which I'm assuming is a good thing 
Um, <laughs> it's not the way I, I, I have been. And it's been a pretty interesting shift to start to see my life through that lens. Interesting. Um, you've always been someone that will pursue uh, learning outside the classroom, uh, continue your, your own edification just to be a better contributor and to help your goals and your um, missions get accomplished. So is there, has there been anything outside of maybe required readings related mm -hmm. to your master's program that you've been reading to help you be more successful in your current activities with 068 or just in general um, do that, have, that have had a significant impact on you? Do you want like a list of, of books or do you want just kind um, of a maybe just a Maybe just a couple books yeah. or readings and, and the specific lesson or mm -hmm. impact that that has made on you. Mm -hmm. um, I, I recently finished David and Goliath by Malcolm Gladwell, which I found out recently that there's all kinds of controversy uh, surrounding Malcolm Gladwell and his writing, but uh, I found it to be extremely interesting how he just kind of questions our societal perception and doesn't leave it at that. He actually uses research and data to show that perhaps the way we look at a problem is not the right way to look at a problem. Perhaps the way we look at advantages is not actually the correct way, and that some people have gotten to where they are in life because of their disadvantage. Um, and learning to compensate and cope with disadvantage. Can you expand on the controversy or just touch on the controversy yeah. associated with his writing? Yeah, well, I think uh, with anyone who uses research, there's going to be some controversy about, well, he's only using research that supports his argument. Like, Gladwell doesn't use any studies that say anything different than his conclusion, you know. Uh, and I, I feel like that's a critique that can be levied against any author who uses research is you're just never going to be able to get through all of the research on a subject. I think that's valid. I also am not sure what people expect when he's trying to prove a point. Why would he use research that doesn't prove his point? And if, you know, if someone really has that big a reaction against what he's trying to say against the, you know, inverse U curves or class sizes or something like that um you know you can go find research <laughs> to support the contrary and and i um i also think he kind of touches a nerve in people when he says we're not thinking about things the right way we aren't doing things the, the right way and perhaps that's someone someone like michael lewis who writes a, a lot about finance um touches that same sort of nerve where it's like, w you know what, we're not doing things the right way. We like to think that we're the most advanced society. We like to think that we tend to do things correctly, and if we're not, we change it. But, I mean, I think it's hard to be open to the fact that we're just not right about things, and we just don't know things. And that's a really scary place for uh, Western culture to be. Going from the macro on that mm -hmm. to the micro, um, how do you deal with the reality that you're not always right about maybe your worldviews or your um, priorities or goals and when uh, facing things that contradict with your viewpoints or challenge you or maybe prove a previous opinion that you had wrong, um, what's your process for reorganizing values and dealing with um, the humbling experience yeah. of basically getting 
shown, hey, I was I was really wrong about something, mm -hmm. and um, I kn I know for my for my own self, um, that can be really painful, and it's really easy to use denial or use um, some other defense mechanism to kind of skip over that and avoid mm -hmm. that pothole. Um, but I guess, how would you say you deal with mm -hmm. uh, situations mm -hmm. like that? That's a really good question. Um, I think uh, the best way I could say is, and it's, it's a very physical analogy, but um, don't hold anything too tightly. Um, I, I read a great quote by one of my favorite authors, Donald Miller. He said, the, uh, the opposite of love is not hate. The opposite of love is control. And uh, we have this need to control things and to be right. Like, I need to be right. I have to. If I'm not right, then I don't know how to anchor myself in reality. And, and when I have an idea, so I have an idea that, you know, um, I have this idea that investing in lower income communities is a, is a really good idea. I think that's something that governments should be doing actively. Um, not everyone agrees with me. It's up in the air whether this is uh, fiscally responsible. Um, and I think I don't need to be right. I don't have to be right about that. I can say this is my opinion. I believe in it very strongly, but I respect you enough to disagree. Um, I respect you enough for us to have differing viewpoints and we can sit in the same space. Um, you being, not you specifically, but the kind of metaphorical, you, the metaphorical you. you. Yeah. Um, we can sit in the same space and have disagreements and um, that's okay. The sun will come up tomorrow. You know, Barack Obama will still be the president tomorrow. Um, I'll still live in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania tomorrow. The, you know, there's the, my world is not going to come crashing down because you and I have different viewpoints about fiscal responsibility or racial inequality or even something as trivial as like whether the Orioles are a vastly superior team to the Nationals or something <laughs> like that. Um, I, learning to uh, hold on to that lightly and just say, okay, we have different views, we can talk. And then I think the other thing is willing, l having the ability to have your mind changed and be wrong. Being willing to be wrong is really important. Um, and that's really hard, like you said. It's really painful to know that you're wrong. But I think once you kind of cross that hurdle and say, I'm wrong, it just, it was it. I'm not going to like explode. I'm not going to, I'm not going to melt. Um, my value as a human isn't found in being right. <laughs> Um, being wrong and having your opinion changed are extremely important because everyone has been wrong about something and everyone should have their opinion changed at least a hundred times Absolutely. because things are, are way too complicated in the world to just have one kind of line of thinking about one thing for your whole life. That's just, to me, that's unhealthy. I think that that's one of the most important adjustments uh, that a lot of young people can make is being raised in a culture or just if you <laughs> turn on the news, uh, all the value, all the attention is given to the polarized, unflinching, um, opinion-filled talking head that will never back down from the, uh, mark the line they've made in the sand. Mm -hmm. 
And when you have that mentality, um, that rig- um, rigidity, or that's, I guess that's not a word, rigidness yeah. is what's actually going to cause a culture or a school of thought to fall apart when it can't adapt and it can't change to the environment that's constantly changing. Absolutely. It's a, it's yeah. a reality of nature that there's going to be different weather every day. The seasons are going to change. And it's a fundamental skill to be able to adapt and um, yeah. em- evolve to meet those changing yeah. circumstances. I, I, I think going really deep on the subject, it's a matter of uh, respect and belonging as well, where we have this very transactional view of belonging in society, where there is an exchange of services done to to me, for me, and by me. And those kind of have to, we have to get all of our transactional ducks in a row. And I have to have the right stuff. I have to have a certain number of things done to me and for me so I can do things for you. And we, we, we give back and forth. And um, that, I believe, is a very unhealthy way to look at the world. Um, I also think that affects how we feel like we belong, where we only belong if we can do things for other people if we have value to other people or if people are assigning us value by doing things for us and I think that's a really binary and unhealthy way to look at the world Um, I also think we when you fight openly with someone when you argue when you have these ad hominem attacks you are telling someone that you do not respect them to me um, ad hominem attacks are very disrespectful and a way of telling someone that you do like I don't respect you as a person Um, I don't respect your thoughts Um, I don't think your thoughts are legitimate I don't think what's coming out of your mouth is legitimate Uh, it's it's to me it's questioning your legitimacy as a human being and um, perhaps there's a need for that in some really extreme radical cases but um, by and large I think we we go to that way too fast and we don't we don't have a lot of respect for our fellow humans, inerrant respect, simply because they're alive and breathing. That's a that's a really good point. Um, I think that I think that that falls under the category of lessons whose teacher is not clearly defined. Hopefully, you're getting that from a parent, from a role model, from a mentor, from a teacher, um, but. In our society where I have an English teacher, I have a math teacher, I have a sports coach, I have a music instructor, um, that to me is a really interesting problem where there isn't always a clearly defined um, teacher in that arena. How Mm -hmm. How do you educate someone to not only argue logically, but just not necessarily even call it arguing, call it a discussion, call it an exchange of conversation, a a conversation that is going to ultimately bear fruit for everyone involved and not turn into a battle royale where I have to win this segment or walk away the victor. Um, one of the, one of the upcoming guests, uh, uh, David Vatz has talked about himself being a dark arguer where he, he r- has recognized himself that he has this um, underlying desire to just win the argument. And 
I strongly believe that that's something that he's been taught. It's a learned response. It's a learned behavior. Um, and it's, it's really interesting that, you know, he's eventually come to recognizing that in himself. But there's so many people who go through their day, go through their years, go through their life, never realizing that or maybe realizing it and not making a change, acknowledging it, uh, you know, changing their behavior to fix that issue. Um, where would you say you got that awareness from? Mm-hmm. Well, um, I think part of that w- w- when you talk about I have to I, I think you hit the nail on the head I have to win the argument it doesn't matter if I'm right about the topic at hand what matters is that I win and I think those are two different things that we kind of collude together but um, I guess to me it's a cycle where I'm not going to back down from what I believe you're not going to back down from what you believe so we're just going to go round and round and round and round, and I see that ad nauseum on my Facebook, you know, talking about very sensitive and controversial issues like Ferguson or Baltimore. Is, is, is they're just people are not going to be moved. People's opinions are not going to be changed. And I think the way that cycle breaks is by someone taking a hit and saying, I'm wrong. You're right. I was wrong. I think th- that is the only way the cycle breaks, and you said it very clearly <laughs> earlier. That's really painful and really difficult to do. Um, but you can start to see change when I can say, "Well, maybe I'm not think about this the right way. Maybe I'm not considering your perspective." Um, and you break down that walls of having to win, um, and and make it instead about having to learn. Um, and that's I think that's a huge change. Uh, for me personally, I think, um, I, you know, talking about controversial subjects as my own personal Christian faith influences that a lot because the model for Christianity is Jesus and the model Jesus says is I'm going to suffer and die. Um, I'm going to be the servant of others. He washes his followers feet and takes the role of the servant and, and, um, instead of playing the moral high ground, he chooses to be killed. And I think that is the example that I follow or I try to follow where it's not more important that I'm right. My being right is not the most important thing at stake in a conversation. The most important thing is whether or not I'm loving the person across the Facebook comment section or across the table or across, you know, whatever from me. If I'm not showing that person love and respect, I have failed. I have lost, if you will. What impact do you think, because everyone's fallen into that trap. As much as we're, you know, kind of sitting on our high horses and saying Mm -hmm. that, you know, that's what's wrong, that's what's messed up. I'm I'm guilty of trying to win an argument, letting my emotions overcome me. Um... How much do you think that the discussion, argument, conversation, whatever you want to call it, taking place in a public forum versus uh, in a more private setting affects our nature to do that? Because, you know, Facebook or, you know, uh, sitting in a room with a bunch of people is where I see the most divisive, polarized, um, un-inflexible opinions being launched do you think that that is tied to our 
desire to impress the bystander or, or where would you say that um, that desire I really it, manifests I think itself? I think it comes from our search for meaning and belonging and um, our locus of belonging, our the, the spot from where our belonging comes from um, is internal. And I have to belong because X. I, c- I have to belong because I can do X or I can say X or I belong because I can out-argue people or if I lose, I don't belong. I'm not accepted. Um, if I'm wrong, people might people might abandon me. If I'm wrong, people hurt me. Um, if I don't do this, people hurt me or I feel hurt. And I think it's a fear of pain and a fear of rejection. Like, a, not not like a, you know you can't say with us kind of thing, but like a really deep um, rejection um, at a very personal level is what spurs that on is like, no, 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 no. I can't be wrong. I, I, I just can't, I, I don't care. I can't, I can't, I can't, I'm, I'm not good. I'm not worth it. I'm not a lovable person if I'm wrong. Um, if, you know, if in fact there is racial injustice in this country, like I can't be wrong about it because I won't belong or, I can't be wrong about the fact that there's racism in this country because I don't know who I am without that. I don't know if I belong without that. And that's what spur I, to me, um, that's what spurs a lot of people on is it, our identity is, is, is in what we can do, how we can validate ourselves to other people, how I can pitch myself to other people. When you reflect on that type of pain, which is, of you know it's it's maybe at the top of the the chart as mm-hmm. far as the depth and um reaction that it elicits that type of pain is there a memory or an, an experience uh in your past that comes to mind as a as when you really felt like you got slapped in the <laughs> face with that realization <laughs> um great transition into uh my adoption story <laughs> um yeah I, my, I i'm adopted um and i think that is where i've come face to face with some of the deepest pain some of the um some of the thoughts that make you consider whether your life is worth living anymore some of the desire to hurt yourself um, I guess for me, yeah, that comes, that comes out of having this very early, very primal relationship kind of cut off and, and, and hurt, um, being hurt in that way where, um, my adoption was prearranged and, um, you know, my, my, my family showed up to the hospital right after I was born and, and picked me up and, uh, so I, I I didn't spend any time with my biological mother apart from you know the birthing process, but um, that's a really that's a relationship that can't be defined in terms of talking or kind of communication and in terms of just real connection. Um, I spent nine months inside my mother growing because she let me do that. She she blessed me with that, and then that just got cut off, and there was no closure or no explanation. Um, and that makes it really hard for me to feel like I belong anywhere. 
um, I think that uh, working with a lot of kids who've been through foster care or who have shattered or extremely strained relationships with their parents, um, you can see that I just want somewhere to belong and feel like I don't have to do anything or be anyone to be accepted. And I think that for me is where I came face to face with that pain when I started reflecting on that and and talking to people about that. And that's still, you know, it's an ongoing process. It's not like there's a, a time-limited window for pain about belonging. <laughs> there's not a time-limited window for pain when your family hurts you. Um, but I think I wouldn't understand this in the way I do. Or I wouldn't be able to talk about it like this if there wasn't a lot of redemption. And I would hate for people to think that there hasn't been a ton of redemption in my story and a lot of healing and... Uh, getting to meet my biological mother several times and and at least try and build a relationship and start to understand where she's at and how she has a completely different perspective on this than I do um, and how both our perspectives has to exist side by side. One is I'm not more right about it than she is and she's not more right about it than I am and, and that's a, a difficult thing but that's how I kind of started to really get in touch with this sort of pain in myself and start to see it in other people was, was you know and this is from when I was like 8 to 10 through now I'm 24 years old and so it's been a really long process sometimes more intentional than others but it's 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 been a growth and a development and this is just kind of where I'm at in the process this is not a a finished belief system this is a um where I'm at currently and, you know, I'll be tracking differently in three years or, or you know, who knows what's going to happen. Absolutely. Um, feel free to reject this as a as a binary question. But do you feel you've been more shaped by the pains and fears and um, I guess you, you could say events that elicited negative emotions mm -hmm. in your life versus the events uh, where you felt the best, the biggest wins, uh, the most loved you've ever felt, those mm -hmm. moments where you feel you're completely safe and secure and cared for. Yeah, I think, um, I don't know. Uh, I guess I would just change the binary of that question around and say one can't happen without the other. Um, you can't, uh, you can't experience true, profound, my opinion, of course, but, um, you can't experience true, profound joy and belonging and happiness without there being, um, a, a sort of place where there's the opposite, where there's something else happening. So I couldn't experience the love and the richness of relationships if I had, if I hadn't been in places where I considered taking my own life. Um, never attempted for any friends or family <laughs> listening. <laughs> never been attempted, but um, there was some, some dark times where there was consideration. And uh, um, I, 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 for me, it's really hard to separate those two out and say one shaped me here, one shaped me there. I think they are sort of this 
you know, yin and yang kind of thing where they're circling and you need one to make the other. Uh, I was I was listening to a great sermon the other day that said there are always two trees in the garden. Um, you can choose the tree that has good fruit or or unhealthy fruit, but there's the big point is that there's always two things kind of coexisting and and they they fuel one another because they exist in the same space the places places of deep pain and places of deep belonging both exist in my life and it's not like you know now i'm feel experiencing a lot of belonging but in you know 25 minutes i'm going to feel pain and they it's it, they both exist together in the same space and and they interact with one another and i think that's the sort of binary if you'd like that comes out of that so I experienced one through the other. Makes a lot of sense. Um, when did you find out, or can you tell us a story about mm-hmm. when you found out you were adopted? Um, so it was never kind of a reveal. It was never like, you know, when I turned eight, everyone's like, surprise, you know, we're not your real parents. Because uh, I, I, I don't, that's just not how I view it. Um, I grew up hearing the story of when I met my mom and dad. Um, which involved them waking up, going to the airport, flying out to California, and meeting me at the hospital. <laughs> and that was, it actually took me a while to understand that that wasn't everyone's story. Yeah. That wasn't how everyone met, like, met their parents. In fact, you know, you just kind of showed up. Your parents didn't get on a plane to go meet you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know? Uh, so... <laughs> I've I've always known about it, and it's been a question that I've dealt with more or less intentionally at various times in my life. Sometimes I'm really invested in it. Sometimes I'm not. Um, so it, it it I've always grown up with it just being a part of my life. It's just a fact about me. Another, uh, I guess, demographic, if you will. Um, I'm an adopted kid, but I have a really great family. I have a great. I guess you'd call them adopted family, but to me, they're my family family. Um, shown me nothing but love and, and acceptance and have seems like they've done a pretty good job raising me so far. So um, I, d- I don't see my story as like super unique or crazy or anything, you know, outlandish or anything like that. When you're asked to or when you just try to define yourself um are you comfortable saying I'm the kid who was adopted? I'm, you know, designating specific titles or designations to who you are, or do you are you someone who prefers to reject um, mm-hmm. those designations? Um, that's a great question. <laughs> I think I think I one of the places where I'm broken as a human being is. I use that sort of thing as a defense mechanism. So one of the things I learned to avoid pain was if I make fun of myself, that takes all the sting out of anyone else doing it. Um, If it's already been done, no one else is going to like say, yeah, you did blah, 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 whatever. So if I, you know, um, so I, I, uh, I guess I've used that. I've defined myself by that in a way of, not Id- kind of not identifying with myself if that makes sense i i will crack a joke about my being adopted or or my being overweight or ugly or something like that and i use that 
to distance myself from anyone else identifying me in that way. That's kind of the the idea behind it. And that's a complicated psychological thing. But um, I guess I don't... I do so much. It's hard for me to define myself as I'm an adopted kid. I'm also a citizen of Pennsylvania. I also am a graduate of H.B. Woodlawn High School. I also... I'm an alumnus of the University of Pittsburgh. I also went to Rivendell School. I also, like, there are so many things that I can kind of choose to define myself by. That what do you choose most often? Or mm-hmm. what do you, what's <laughs> maybe some of the most important yeah. ones to yeah. you? Uh, great question. <laughs> <laughs> One that I'm not sure I have an answer to. Uh, I guess... I don't know. Um, in America, we say where we're from and, and what we do a lot. So I do this or that job, and I grew up in Northern Virginia and moved to Pittsburgh. You know, um, I don't. When when I look at myself in the mirror, um, I don't know really. I couldn't tell you what my how I identify. Gotcha. Um, how would you say, uh, I guess, do you see yourself being a, a dad or a father one day? I would like nothing more. Um, I, I had an incredible father growing up who who is very much my hero, and I can't think of anyone else I've ever looked up to more than him. Um, and I guess... I would love to be able to do that for someone else um, to to bring life into the world or to adopt. Uh, I'd also love to be a foster parent. Um, I think that is just such a powerful relationship to have to someone. And, um, you know, working with kids as closely as I do, feeling very protective of them and, and feeling like, you know, I would step out in the street for you know, I dive into the street to protect them, or I'd I'd step in front of, I'd t- I'd step in front of a bullet for them, or whatever. Um, and only imagining that can be magnified if they were my child, that I either chose to be in my family or brought into the world. And I can only imagine those feelings being magnified, and and those feelings give me a lot of joy, and and a lot of peace, and. So to have that magnified and to ideally get to do that with, you know, a partner um, with with my wife would just be to me. I that that's it. That's kind of my top of the pyramid right there. Cool. Do you think that your involvement with programs like Big Brothers, Big Sisters or I know you, you've been involved in a lot of other kind of day camps, summer yeah. camps, things like that. Do you think that's a conscious or subconscious attempt to hone skills that you'd use in the future as a father or is it fall more under the category of this is just something I purely enjoy doing that's a (laughs) secondary benefit Mm -hmm. um, that you know I just enjoy doing this if it benefits me in the future so be it Um, short answer to that is yes (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I, you know, I, I love, 
um, psychoeducating myself and learning more about how to care for people, more how to discipline people, how to love people, especially kids better. Um, I have, I love working with kids. Um, I really, really do. And, but it's also just fun, good work. You know, I, I've enjoyed mostly all of my camp work experience. I've enjoyed the people I've met there. Um, and so on and so forth. So, it, you know, both are correct, I think, in equal measure. I haven't consciously thought, you know, this is fatherhood training right here, but uh, I could totally see that my subconscious working it out that way, you know. Yeah, I, I think looking back at some of my own uh, different jobs I've done, different training I've done, there's a when you reflect on some of your experiences, the lessons that you take from those experiences aren't always the ones that you initially entered the experience expecting to learn. So for example, um, we both played for the University of Pittsburgh Ultimate Team. I you know, showed up to every track workout, spent time in the gym, uh, really with the, the primary objective of, you know, I wanna be on the field, I wanna be contributing for the team. I don't want to get tired. I want to win my matchup. And, you know, taking myself into the professional world, the biggest lesson that I think that those experiences taught me that I'm applying today is the ability to fight through discomfort and fight through um, the day when you don't want to show up, the day when you are just not feeling it, um, that's been probably the most valuable. It doesn't really help that, you know, I improved my bench press or I can do some pull-ups when I'm, you know, trying to set a meeting with someone. That doesn't, isn't really relevant. Um, but when you hear no from somebody, you hear not right now, and the underlying reality is you're gonna have to keep working, you're gonna have to keep pushing, in order to accomplish the goal that you've set for yourself, um, I think has is, is been incredibly valuable. So I, I really, I see that a lot in, in your story, that there's countless lessons that you've learned not necessarily aiming to learn them. Uh, I think that's a really, um, really interesting reality. I think wha- one of the things I'd always tell younger players on the team and and even when I coach is like the you know our season isn't a sprint it's a marathon and you're gonna have bad track workouts and you're gonna have days where you just you can't get the bar up enough times or you can't get, you can get through eighty percent of the workout and that's okay because the season does you know there's only one time when you can say the season ends tomorrow um, there's always more to be done and you just need to keep pushing through. Um, and that's, I, yeah, that's a huge skill I learned from, especially from playing on a high level team where excellence is demanded and expected. Um, but then also when something great happens, when you just make every time in a track workout or you beat your, your rep, you still got to show up the next day. You know, the season didn't end because we won a tournament except for nationals, but twice, but, uh, the season didn't end because we won Easterns and the season didn't end because I put up a new one rep max on the bench or because 
I could get, you know, to 15 squats instead of 12 or whatever. Um, those highs and those lows aren't what define the season. The season is what defines the season. And to put it in terms of this one thing is, is inappropriate. And maybe that's just me compensating for the fact that I was like chronically out of shape and maybe it's really sage life advice, but I prefer it to be sage life advice. (laughs) I think. Is there anything when you, do you set goals for yourself regularly or Mm -hmm. or what's your process? Um, Is there anything that you fear not accomplishing? Something out there that Mm -hmm. you envision for yourself that is a non-negotiable or something that you'd, Mm -hmm. um, would make you feel like you came up short if you didn't accomplish? I have a weird relationship with goals where I understand the importance of goal setting and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but I, I think it's, to me, it's more about showing up every day and, and doing what you said you were going to do. So when I have, you know, for instance, with ultimate, when we say our goal is to win a national championship, um, what is that goal? And, you know, and you break the goal down, what does that entail? What do you have to do? means being in shape, being at practice, watching film, you know, spending time with your team, you know, all these sorts of things. And so I would I would have that big goal and then I'd say here are the steps the action steps we need to achieve it, but then I'm not saying all right, what's my action step for today? What's my, you know, it's it's 3 p.m. on a Thursday, so now it's time for practice and like that's my action step today. I would just be like that's what I signed on to do and I said I'm going to do it, so I have to do it. And to the best of my ability, I have to do it well. I have to give what I can give um, to this thing. Um, so I don't particularly know if that's goal setting as much as just, to me, it's about following through with what you said you are going to do and, and trying to, to follow through as much as you can. Uh, so I guess that's a means of goal setting and, and kind of a way of following it. But I'm not super huge on like, our goals for the week are this, our goals for the month are this. Um, that's That's... I don't mind that. I don't mind operating in that framework, but that's not how I choose personally to operate. So if you are operating on, a, like you said, the premise of showing up day to day, what would you say on a day to day or week to week basis is the biggest obstacle or problem that you face making that happen? If that's your, if that's mm-hmm. your primary priority. Um, it's hard to show up every day and do things well. It's really hard to, you know, for instance, get up early and do my devotions in the morning and eat a healthy breakfast and stretch and then go to work and stay on the ball at work and then go to my second job and stay on the ball at my second job and um, then go home and make sure I'm present with my housemates in my community and then go to bed, get a good dinner, go to bed on time, um, go to bed well, uh, calming down, not going to bed too amped up or anything like that, um, and make sure, like, that's hard, even just macro, and that's not going into all the details of all the different things that that entails, that's just really difficult, it's really (laughs) difficult to be that consistent, and, um, I think it, it wears on you, it feels like, like, you know, like a weight vest or something, where it's just, it becomes, oh, I have to do this, I have to do that, and it's drudgery. Um, 
And it's really a challenge to find joy and inspiration and passion for those things and love for those things as well. Um, and to kind of conjure that up. And I think it is really important, you know, just getting through is a very much a life skill where it's like, I have to do it. Just, I don't want to. I don't want to show up for this meeting. I don't want to call this person. I don't want to have to discipline this child again and again and again and again. I have to. It's my job. I said I was going to do it. It really sounds like the def- almost the definition of maturity to me. Um, that's Thank you for sharing that. Um, we're just about done here. Yeah. Uh, as maybe the listeners don't know, but you know, uh, I wrap up every episode with my guest offering a challenge to the listeners. Um, really the only criteria for this challenge is that uh, Mike is offering this challenge because he thinks it'll benefit you. Um, he's seen something resembling this challenge benefit his own life. And uh, I really encourage you to follow through on whatever he's about to challenge you to do. I'm going to try to do it as well. Uh, I, don't, I don't know what he's going to say, so I'm pretty <laughs> excited to hear it. Um, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to drop the mic over to, uh, over to him. Um, I, I would challenge people to see other people's problems and relationships and issues and lives as more important than your own, not something that fits into your story, not something that um, you can or can't deal with. But, you know, when I'm sitting down with someone or I'm talking to my girlfriend or whatever, their problems trump mine. And it is more important for them to get what they need than for me to get what I need. And if it's helpful to just pick a person in your life, maybe your partner, your significant other, your boss, your coworker, or just say for the, for the morning, I'm going to see everyone's problems as more important than my own. Um, I think that is hugely important. And I think a lot of people need to start doing that. So maybe it's, I'm frustrated that this person can't meet with me, but their needs are more important than my need to meet with them. So I need to be accommodating and just trying that in a relationship or in a space of time is really difficult, but I think really powerful as well. That's, that's a great challenge. Thank you so much. Uh, I think I'm, my plan is for tomorrow to try to do that in all my interactions and I'm going to reflect on how that went at the end of the day. Cause I think, um, a reflection on that's really what's going to help it become a consistent habit as opposed to a one-time experiment. Um, Mike, thank you so much for coming on the show. Sure thing. It was awesome. I, uh, I really appreciate the honesty and uh, just your beautiful, your mind's beautiful ability to articulate um, all the thoughts and, and deal with all my, all my crazy <laughs> questions. Um, <laughs> I'm sure you'll be back on the show at some future love point to, in time. Yeah. Uh, but for now... This has been Aaron Watson. We've gone deep with Michael Van Ness, and I'll see you all next time.
thank you so much to Mike for coming on the show. I'm sure we will be having him back sometime in the future, uh, hopefully sooner rather than later. Uh, If you want to learn a little bit more about Mike or connect with him, be sure to check out the show notes for some more information about him and 068. Uh, Once again, you can help this show out by giving us a rating and a review on iTunes. Um, making sure you subscribe if you haven't already. And uh, until next time, thanks for going deep, and we'll see you again soon.